Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. This episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, well, the content is is good, well, for a while, but there is an element of this that has a little bit of an expiration. And let me hit the, on that real quick. So I had a chance to talk with Mark Marino. Mark is the Vice President of Growth and Strategy Development at VentureWell. You can learn more about VentureWell, VentureWell.org. They've been involved with the NIH RADx program. This is an important program that's been around for a little over a year in response to the COVID pandemic. Well, they're in the middle of soliciting applicants for the RADx Tech 2 program. And those are for technologies that have the opportunity to still get commercialized in the year 2021. And that application process is ticking. I mean, we're in the next couple of weeks. So by late June, you know, that's the deadline. So to hit on that real quick, but do enjoy, even if RADx program doesn't seem like it might be something you're interested in, I think the content of this episode is really good because it highlights the importance of programs and initiatives like this. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And joining me today is Mark Marino. Mark is the VP of Growth Strategy and Development. I think I got that right. AdventureWell, Mark, welcome. Yeah, thank you, John. Great to be here. Well, I'm excited about this because for a little over a year or so, I think Greenlight has been the premier QMS software provider for the NIH RADx program. So I guess that might be a great place to start. What is that program all about and why should people be paying attention to that? Great. Yeah. So about a little over a year ago, just celebrating the one-year anniversary in May, RADx, the Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostics Initiative, was launched out of the NIH to really address the testing crisis happening in the United States related to SARS. COVID-2 testing. So with a great deal of stimulus funds and some really insightful uh, congressional leadership, they passed $1.5 billion to address the testing initiatives here in the United States with four particular programs that were launched as part of this initiative. One was really new technologies that would potentially change the face of diagnostic industry of ways to detect the virus in novel ways. One to address underserved populations called RADxF. One to just really take already commercially ready diagnostic tests and move them really quickly to the market. And then the program we've been really running and helping to implement the number of different partners is Radex Tech, which is to take pretty well-designed, well-thought-through early pilot and really support them with intense commercialization support to get them to the market faster. And in a year, with a consortium of 900 experts and individuals from around academia, government industry, and 700 applications that came through, we ended up funding about 150 projects that went through a a bit of a three-staged, intense, shark tank-like, as described on the hill process to put them through due diligence, some funding, and then take them through the whole commercialization process from QMS systems to regulatory filing, all the way to supply chain, commercial and marketing and sales. And today we've produced around 300 million tests in the United States came out of this project, which is, you know, it's crazy, man, in a year. Yeah. I was just going to say, sometimes when folks think about like, or at least maybe I should say, when I think about government getting involved and accelerating things, it doesn't always accelerate things, but this is actually an example of true acceleration. I mean, a hundred, would you say 150, would you call these companies or more? uh... Yeah, it was a mix. You know, everyone, you know, we had a really diverse 
diverse range of applicants. You had an academic partner and some really good examples that came out of this that really expanded lab tasting. So the Broad Institute has been one of those that really wasn't doing this, but then were. You had a lot of uh, really large Fortune 100 companies that had some type of test, but were able to move it faster on the market. But the vast majority were small businesses. Wow. Those were the most successful companies that had, were doing some diagnostics, had a little bit of a team assembled, but these are you know typically companies under 100 people that were able to really rapidly utilize the resources accelerate. So the government provided the funding and the framework. We had a number of different subject matter experts that supported the work. Academia provided a lot. So there's a number of academic partners affiliated with this. Johns Hopkins, Emory, really coordinated by a group out of MGH uh, called CIMIT, the Consortium of Innovation and Medical Technologies. They were some of the backbone behind this process. And then you apply all of those business expertise to the academic partners that were doing verification to the government funding. You're able to get diagnostic tests, which typically take three to five years. You're able to get them on the market in less than a year. So oh, that's crazy. Crazy in a good way. I mean, so you talked about 300 million tests that have been administered as a direct result of the entities that have been involved in this program. I mean, are these just all COVID tests? Can you give, I guess, maybe yeah. some examples or maybe sure, a little bit more sure. details around that? Yeah. So this was really specifically addressing live detection of SARS-CoV-2. So not really doing with antibody testing, but it can be the full range of the some of the other analytes. So lateral flow assays, antigen-based tests. In the really early stages, it was a lot of laboratory high-throughput lab tests. You know, in the very beginning, getting those labs up to be able to get quick turnaround right. times and be able to build their capacity. So we focused on the labs and then really tried to move over to the point of care tests and then slowly getting to over-the-counter. So the first over-the-counter test that was authorized in the United States from a company called Illum was one of our projects. And, you know, the first ever over-the-counter, even in, with an emergency use authorization, respiratory detection in, in the history of the United States. So to be able to get that through was pretty impressive, but the spectrum is all over. So it's labs, it's point of care, it's antigen, it's over-the-counter, really the full range of COVID testing. Yeah, and I've talked with a few other folks involved in various initiatives as a result of the pandemic. And yes, of course, the pandemic has been a challenge. And, you know, a lot of folks have had, unfortunately, suffered and many people have lost lives. And at the same time, programs like RADx and some of the other things have been really encouraging that, you know, it's sad that it takes this type of event to spark that sort of innovation and accelerating bringing products and technologies to the market. But at the same time, I mean, the outcome of this has been like, okay, you know, at some point in time when we're kind of through this, whenever that is, it'll be interesting, I think, to kind of look back and say, okay, what are some lessons learned from this experience that we can apply as part of everyday life of bringing new medical technologies to market? That's right. I think there was a really good article in Nature about what does this mean now for the diagnostic industry? If we're able to do this in a short period of time, does it require really centralized lab system, which is not conducive really? to this innovative, responsive, personalized type of diagnostic system that really requires a whole sorts of bureaucracy, payment, complexity, mm -hmm. and, you know, years to get through. Can we flip that? And we showed that it's possible, right? right? It's possible with some pretty innovative technologies, possible when the regulatory environment aligns with those goals. And you're able to get really impressive, you know, the all this talk of personalized medicine has happened where yeah. you're able to get some very specific targeted diagnostic devices that otherwise would not be available on the market. And now the next phase of that work is, okay, so now what do you do with these variants that are evolving? Can there be additional structures and 
you know, next genomic sequencing type of technologies that would really address the evolving virus as it goes. Can you do multiplex testing and start testing both COVID and flu AB at the same time using the same test? So now we're starting to really see some really rapid evolution with some really exciting technologies that are starting to come within the pipeline of the market. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And you talked about Radix Tech being sort of a Shark Tank-esque type of program. I mean, talk a little bit about that. There's different stages and companies have to demonstrate, I'm guessing, you know, some sort of proof of concept or viability. I guess, talk a little bit about that process. Yeah. So it is, you know, like a traditional kind of VC, kind of taking NIH funding and turning it into a VC model to really have a funnel approach with a little bit of capital, but a lot of due diligence and technical support. So the first phase is really a bit of a deep dive. So there's an expert from across industry and government and academia reviewing the validity of the proposals in the first phase. So there is a review panel that is providing you know, with a set of criteria, an assessment and a review, those teams then get some resources to go through a one to two week deep dive process where they are given an expert team of diagnostic, you know, former executives, uh, subject matter expertise that know their technology, you know, coming from a variety of different places and a number of different project support. Greenlight Guru being in some cases, like if they need some quality management systems as identified or have a legacy system is one of those resources that can really help leverage that work. So they're getting these amazing resources from the very beginning to determine, like, can they meet the next milestone? Can they meet the technology development milestone? Can their tests stand up to the performance? Do they have the team in place to be able to execute? Are they fitting a unique need in terms of a use case, a clinical case? And then they get different tranches of funding as they go through the process. They go through some of our partners to verify in the lab if their test holds up, if the sample collection and usability is feasible. And then waiting at the end of them is a large NIH commercial contract that really helps rapidly scale and manufacture this work uh, with a number of partners, uh, BARDA, DOD, FDA, all a part of this large unified, in some degree, federal agency, helping to support them on that work to get them out into the market as fast as possible. And then we provide more resources as they need. If there's a yeah. bottleneck in the supply chain and nitrocellulose and trying to find the right partner, if, again, if there's a need of the right QMS system, then we've got partners ready and willing to really jump in and help support those teams to be successful. The supply chain, the logistics, just coordinating all that, that's got to be a massive undertaking. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's like, that. again, like 900 individuals have been a wow. part of this. What's been amazing, like you can think of, wow, that's impossible to coordinate, but everyone, you know, described as like the Manhattan Project, and I wasn't around when that was really happening. So, you know, it's like everyone has an expertise. Everyone has the same goal. People are letting go of both ego and showing up with tons of humility about, well, what can I do to help? How can I add value? And so you yes. have a whole group group in their specialization, really just trying to be helpful, attached to the teams who they want to see successful. So there's no ownership, there's no feeling of turf wars. It's really about getting the best projects out to the public as fast as possible, and with a really a whole consortium ready to support. And I think that's the key point is that everyone uniting for a cause to help humanity, right? You know, so I think that in and of itself, I mean, it feels good to be able to do that, but to be able to make a difference, because, you know, something like this could happen again, or to your point. There's a variant that this isn't over yet and all that sort of thing. So the need oh, is right. going to be there. And some parts of the world are, are in dire need of these sorts of things now. That's absolutely right. So on a few different levels, you know, one, the National Institutes of Health, right, which, you know, you think of in terms of your traditional research funder, they stepped up in a massive way to do things that the NIH historically has not done, right? Thinking on translation, commercialization, focusing on really getting products on the market, not just really cool tech. 
right. some of the tech's really cool, but like they're really thinking about the success, which NIH hasn't done. So they've completely switched their model and they've said it's going to be hard to go back to just funding a large academic research study. They want this to be the new way the NIH does business, which is, again, as one of the largest life sciences funder in the entire world, like that's a huge statement that they found so much value in the process that they're going to really want to prioritize this moving forward. So you can apply this to neurotherapeutics. You could apply this to sure. like sickle cell. You could apply this to a number of different med tech and healthcare related issues and see how it works. And like you said, the virus isn't going anywhere. You see it pop up with a number of different areas. And I don't think there still are unmet needs in the current testing landscape that this next solicitation called RADx Tech 2 is aimed to solve, focusing on you know, better sample collection, particularly for pediatric populations or focusing on, you know, the quote unquote, perfect test, a cheap operating like performance of a lab, but could be delivered in the point of care over the counter with really good results. That's very easy to get by. So there's still some look at the search for the perfect test in, yeah. in the counter and point of care, while also having a goal of being able to really identify variants as they become more prevalent and being able to address those with again new technologies, new approaches to testing and identification. All right. I want to come back and talk about Radex Tech 2 and get more in, into the details of that. Uh, but before we do so, I want to take a quick break. Mark, I mentioned that you're with VentureWell. Talk a little bit about your role and what VentureWell does and, you know, above and beyond just the part that you're playing in the Radex programs. Yeah, great. VentureWell is a 25-year-old nonprofit organization based here in lovely Western Massachusetts. We were founded with the basic premise to try to take science and technology, innovators, entrepreneurs, and ideas out of the university and into the market by providing funding, support, structure, training, resources. So we do this with student entrepreneurship programs. We do this with faculty and educators, providing them funding. We do this with network convening. And over the last few years, we've applied that same model that works in higher education to a number of different federal agencies whether it's the National Science Foundation, i program, U.S. Department of State, and a global innovation program, as well as recently tapped to, to help administer and support the NIH RADx program. So my role is to lead some of the partnership work, identify areas of potential growth and development, and be you know, a bit of our healthcare-related uh, expert when requested. All right. And how can folks learn more about VentureWell? What's the best way to, to yeah, connect? Uh, Head online at VentureWell.org. And yeah, we've got a number of different opportunities, funding that we're providing, uh, training programs where we're offering, and a number of different, just we also are a bit of a convener for resources, strictly in innovation entrepreneurship around the country. So check out some of our events and opportunities to learn more. All right. Awesome. And while we're taking this break, I want to remind folks, you know, Greenlight Guru, we are the premier QMS software provider for the RADx program. And, you know, if you're in the RADx program and you need a QMS, that's great. We're here to help you. If you're a medical device company or an IVD company and you're looking for a QMS solution, well, we can help you with that as well. This is our focus. This is our market. This is what we do for a living. We help companies through design and development, risk management, document management, as well as managing quality events, things like Kappa's complaints, non-conformances. So if you'd like to learn more about the Greenlight Guru medical device success platform, then go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. And if you'd like to have a call with one of our solutions consultants and account executives to learn more about your needs and your requirements to see if we have products and services that fit your needs, well, we'd be happy to have those conversations with you as well. So Mark, you mentioned RADx Tech 2. How is this the same or different from the RADx Tech 1? Where are we in that process and that sort of thing? So I guess maybe unpack that a little bit so that yeah, folks yeah. can learn if they have criteria to be a part of this program. Yeah, we've learned a lot in the year plus of doing RADx tech work. And again, seeing the portfolio and some really, again, really exciting examples, whether it's over the counter point of care, 
you know, when the NBA wanted to reopen, like one of our tests, Bisbee Medical was able to provide their kind of point of care for the bubble that happened last year. Right. Uh, so we've seen, you know, a lot of tests be applied to a number of different communities, small businesses, reopening of schools, you know, labs and, and over the counter. So, you know, we still understand that there is some unmet needs, particularly when it comes to screening, surveillance, diagnostics and prognosis related to at home and point of care tests. So we're really focusing on two particular areas to address some of the national gaps that may still exist. The home-based point of care test, uh, looking for technologies that really have some superior performance characteristics where you can get that you know, lab-like performance, except getting it in point of care time, right? Like usually less than an hour. Uh, can you get the same PCR uh, standard that you would get in a high throughput lab and get it in a point of care over the counter type of test? You know, looking at multiple different respiratory pathogens and doing multiplex tests, looking at pooling, again, a way to really address a large group and test a group at one time. So tests that are really conducive to pooling that allows for better surveillance and infectivity and some of the prevention efforts that testing has provided. And also looking at just, you know, really where the gaps are, particularly as the world or as the United States in particular goes through an increased number of vaccinated population, there's still going to be a gap in the pediatric population, particularly back to school when we, we start talking about the fall and even the summer through summer camp. So right. if there are novel approaches to testing in pediatrics, either in sample collection and ways to allow that, you know, if you were to think about the perfect test, right, it's one where a five-year-old is able to collect his or her own sample and be able to have someone just test and read it and get a result back almost instantaneously. Right. Uh, that may be with results that you can really rely on. Great sensitivity, great specificity, uh, great limit of detection numbers. That may be like a dream, but uh, we still are going to you know, kind of solicit the academic community, the private sector, anyone who's got an idea or some approach to really look at submitting. So that is one big category where, again, it can be anyone in any part of the world. It doesn't even have to be the United States. So the ideas can come from anywhere. We are looking for getting those commercialized in this year, right? So it'd be wow. really hard to not have any kind of concept or any type of validation at this point to try to get an emergency youth authorization by the end of the year. So there's still a goal to see if we can be as fast and as rapid this year as we were last year and get things on the market by the end of the calendar year. So that's one pretty sizable chunk that we're looking for. The other is really to address the variant. We've done a lot of work across a variety of settings to just understand how our tests are holding up to the variant, you know, the various types of genomic lines that do not seem to be changing and all the variability, but those that are and how we can adjust and modify tests to still be as responsive. So new approaches to dealing with variant capabilities, whether that is, again, innovative, you know, kind of next-gen sequencing or other technologies that are capable of this rapid identification and performance that, that really focus on the variant testing or other ways for screening and surveillance to identify how the variants are evolving over time in ways that our test performance can maintain its, their current standards in that. So really those, those are the two main areas of focus and prioritization to address some of what we see as the, the current and potentially future gaps in the testing landscape. All right. As far as the Tech 2 program is concerned, will it also be a phase-based approach similar to Tech 1? Yeah, very similar. So having an initial screening process, due diligence conducted, small amounts of capital deployed for the teams to really embark on that, you know, one to two week deep dive shark tank like process, and then being able to make pretty quick decisions to move them fast through the process, move them through to NIH contracting, moving through the commercialization pipeline, attach resources to them. So similar to what we learned in last year, you know, part of it is the funding, part of it is the infrastructure you can help build with these companies and these projects. So right. having the availability of companies 
companies like Greenlight Guru to continue to provide those QMS systems and support when needed, the regulatory advisory services, the supply chain issues, working through all of that in a similar way to get them to a place of commercial readiness, allow them to deploy by the end of the year. Okay. And I assume there is a, a place that we can direct folks if they're curious about applying or learning more. What would be the best place? Would it be go to VentureWell site or another location? Yeah, you can go to VentureWell site uh, where the solicitation will be connected. The easiest way, so the infrastructure for a lot of RADx is leveraging NIH's existing investment in point of care technology research that's been 10, 15 years in the making. So right. a consortium of academic partners called the Point of Care Technology Research Network, or POCTERN, as we love our acronym, so P-O-C-T-E-R-N, <laughs> they are really providing the backbone support for both the grant applications for the process. So if you go to P-O-C-T-R-N.O-R-G and then backslash radx-tech-2, or just go to pocturn.org, you can find the solicitation on there. All right. Um, it'll take you through all of the criteria we're looking for, the frequently asked questions, and a little bit what the review process looks like and be able to apply directly there. And folks, we'll provide the link that Mark just mentioned and the notes that accompany this episode. So we on look out for that, but Pocturn, P-O-C-T-R-N, if you didn't find it. And, you know, I, I guess you mentioned something a moment ago, and I don't mean to put you too much on the spot here, but you talked about EUA, emergency use authorization. I know that's something that has been really important for a lot of technologies, and it seems like it's, you know, almost like a must-have for the RADx initiatives to be successful. A lot of folks ask me, like, John, how long is this EUA <laughs> going on? And I'm like, I don't know. But any insights that you're hearing? Because to your point, I mean, there's a lot of government agencies that have to collaborate and work collectively together on this. And FDA is a key piece of that. We have a very special relationship with the FDA as it relates to RADx. Weekly meetings to review some of the what, what the pipeline portfolio looks, ask specific questions, get guidance from the FDA. You know, they really have been pretty incredible throughout this whole pandemic. We've been willing to adjust, willing to be responsive, willing to really have the data and the science guide how they're making some decisions, whether that's pooling or whether it's getting, you know, the over-the-counter guidance needed for these tests to be able to get on the market. So we have a very special relationship with them. And, you know, I don't know too much about when the EUA is going to have to translate to like, you know, the 510k process and, and eating that. But I do think that is coming, right? So having the right systems and structures to get that EUA so that you can have a product on the market, while critical now, that is the RADx goal. You know, we are funded through COVID stimulus funds to really specifically address the COVID-19 pandemic. So a lot of this is that EUA goal for getting these companies to get those tests and get on the market. However, you know, those companies, long-term sustainability need to go through that traditional process. And this yeah. them up, but does not guarantee that that process will happen. So we're going to start to see that, I think, particularly as the year winds down and as next year picks up a bit of, you know, the FDA has been really good at communicating with relatively decent notice when there is going to be a shift in transition. I would anticipate they would do something very similar of allowing a bit of a bridge that goes from EUA to 510K to, again, whether that's de novo or other types of classifications. I think sure. they're considering it. There's processes there. And I think they're being very methodical about how they're going to not want to lose the momentum of all these companies that are now able to like, you know, get some commercialized products on the market and not want to just that to just disappear immediately just because of a bit of change in EUA status. So I think it's early and we're still, you know, we're not through. We're certainly in a lot better shape than we were a year ago, but there's still a lot of work to be done. So I don't anticipate that's going to happen anytime in the near future. And I think the FDA is willing to really work with teams work with companies to ensure that that happens in a, in a pretty smooth way. 
Yeah, I should clarify for the layperson listening, EUA is not a substitute for the work. It still requires good science, safety, efficacy, sensitivity, specificity, you know, as far as the, many of the tests are concerned. So you still have to have good science behind it and you still have to present the case with objective evidence. It, it's just a different vehicle to get the clearance, get the product to market. So it's not a substitute for cutting corners or anything of that exactly nature. Exactly right, exactly right. So, Sometimes people know, hear that though, you know, and it's like, oh, wait, yeah. time out. And it's numbers like, oh, I could, you know, or, or people even thinking like, oh, that's going to be an easy process, or I don't need the system. Like, this seems like an elaborate system to build just for an EUA. And like, you forget, like all of your indications for use still need to be there. Your compliance needs to be there. You're still going to be audited. Your evidence has to be there. It's just like maybe less samples than you would in like, you know, in a large clinical trial to get your IVDM. Right. You maybe need a little bit less of a sample size, you know, at least 30 positive samples. So it's less data. So they're not having you to go through as much rigorous clinical research, but the data still has to hold up. It still has to stand. You still need to go good methods and you're still going to be scrutinized pretty heavily. So, well, and I think too, it, you know, if I recall the, once you are commercialized, there's a responsibility to continue to collect data, yeah. right? Exactly right. Like you're yeah. still subject to the audits, you know, you still have to get your systems in order to be able to like retrieve it. You can still subject to FDA visits. You know, there's all the things that now come great responsibility when you get right. EUA. So the work doesn't stop. The work in some cases doesn't even get easier. And the FDA has been really clear about that. They've been pulling away those EUA designations for not really mm -hmm. as much the diagnostics, pretty significantly on the antibody tests. But yeah, you'll see, you know, when things are flagged, they do their own kind of verification to make sure that that holds up. So yeah, you still got to have the right systems in order. Yeah. I think what we're right. telling our companies is to be a viable company in a post-COVID world, you got to do it right the first time, right? Here's your opportunity. Here are the resources. Here's this infrastructure. Here's the software to use to make sure that this is applicable beyond this particular window that you have with us. Absolutely. Mark, I appreciate all that you've shared with respect to the Radex Tech and Radex Tech 2 programs. Anything else that you think is important for listeners to know before we wrap up this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast? Yeah, I think we covered a lot. That was a lot of detail. Uh, really appreciate you having me on. And I do think, you know, there, as we said, you know, kind of in the beginning, this is meant to both prepare for potentially the next pandemic. You know, some of us view this as a trial run for what would happen if you had a particularly lethal version of some type of global pandemic, whether that was an influenza or something else. And this was a test while devastating and horrific and incredibly impactful. You know, we know that other pathogens are out there that we don't know yet. And so, you know, really getting the systems, having the whole community be able to rally like we yes. saw in the last year, you know, we set a precedent for what we could be doing in the future. And if the whole of government works really closely with the private sector, with startups, entrepreneurs, industry, you know, we can accomplish an amazing amount. So this is, again, another opportunity for anyone with those ideas to kind of come forward, see how they work, get access to this great network and resources. And yeah, really just appreciate the opportunity to share the work that we've been doing. And yeah, happy to have the Greenlight Guru as a partner in this work. I know we've enjoyed the partnership and working with you and the VentureWell team and all those involved at Radex as well. And it's really exciting to see some of these things, you know, these thoughts and ideas and tests and, and technologies you know, get to market in a rapid period of time. So, you know, the part that we play in this is just, you know, we're happy to do our part and, and glad that GreenlightGuru is the premier QMS software provider of the Radex program. Folks, 
Mark shared a lot of information today. A couple places that, in summary, that to go venturewell.org, also pockturn, P-O-C-T-R-N.org. And again, we'll provide links to those in the show notes. But I want to thank Mark Marino. Mark is the VP of Growth Strategy and Development at VentureWell. And you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you so much. We're still the number one podcast in the medical device industry, and that's because of you. So, you know, if you're listening to us, wherever you're listening to us, that's great. We're all also on YouTube now, so you can watch many of our episodes. So go check that out and be sure you subscribe to the channel so that you can see when the new episodes are being published. Of course, if you need some help with your quality system needs, reach out to us, www.greenlight.guru. And as always, this is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Mm-hmm.